This is episode 137 with Nadine Champion. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on Your Impactful Journey. Legends, yeah, wow. This episode is jam-packed with gold knowledge bombs. Nadine Champion is a kind, courageous, philosophical soul. She's an awarded martial artist with over 30 years experience and the author of 10 Seconds of Courage, a book where she shares her mindset secrets on resilience and courage. She has successfully fought and won many battles in her life, from the fights in the ring to overcoming cancer. An acclaimed motivational speaker, her 10 Seconds of Courage TEDx Sydney talk is regarded as one of the most memorable of all time. Nadine is a respected teacher known for creating a high-performance mindset in people from all walks of life. Her passion is to challenge individuals and organizations to change their thinking to reach their highest potential. Armed with a zest for life, born of authentic lived experience, Nadine uses her own inspirational story to ignite resilience and courage in others. Her dream is to build a community of people using 10 seconds of courage to reach their highest potential. I first heard about Nadine on a podcast recently. I listened to it and I loved it. As soon as the episode finished, I jumped, I put my phone on flight mode and I did a video, recorded a a personal video to her, thanking her for her valuable input into the world. Her perspective of life and her ability to hone her focus on what's important and getting through some of life's greatest challenges truly inspired me. Whilst we talk a lot about her martial arts and fighting career, I see it more as a metaphor for how she navigates life from a deeply connected, soulful, kind and courageous presence. In this episode, we discuss what courage actually is and the power of being more courageous, the difference between confidence and arrogance as opposed to the difference between confidence and courageous. We talk about Australia's tall poppy syndrome and my relationship to this with being bashed and bullied in my early years of high school. We talk about why you must know who you truly are, what fear feels like and how to channel fear into focus, the philosophy of train hard, fight easy. We talk about how Nadine teaches the strategies and philosophies that she's had to bleed, sweat and cry for. We dive into her personal journey with cancer and how she's used her mental and emotional skills to get her through her greatest challenge yet. Talk about the power of perception and why Nadine believes you are who you tell yourself you are. And we jump into so many different insights and in depth 
into experiences of the human experience. Whether you're an optimistic lover of life or a pessimistic doubter of life, if you listen to this episode with intent and then take action on what you're inspired by, you can make great positive impact from your actions, from what you learn from this episode. Okay, now let's hear from the legend herself, Nadine Champion. Nadine, what does it mean to be courageous? Ooh, I think that varies from person to person. And one thing I've really noticed in Australian culture, especially a bit of tall poppy culture over here, is um, it's really uncool to call yourself courageous. Mm. You know, it's one of those things people, you know, I've, I've done many a, uh, a little amateur survey while I'm speaking at, um, at companies and events. I'll say, how many people in the room would consider themselves courageous? And guess how many hands go up? Zero, maybe one. Yeah, it's a really hard uh, label to attach to yourself, especially when you're uh, in the presence of other people. We don't necessarily want to say, yeah, I'm that, but I'm of the belief that everyone's courageous. Of course we are because, you know, we all get intimidated. We all get scared of things. Um, you know, it's just whether or not it's on your radar that that's what that feeling is. I think a lot of people, um, you know, they don't understand what, uh, what feelings of trepidation or anxiety actually are. So it can be hard to think of yourself as courageous when you don't want to go into that meeting on Monday morning and present your idea, but you know that you have to. And then you go and do it and it goes really well and you think, oh, that was great, relief, without actually pinning a label on yourself that goes, oh, that took a bit of courage, that was a bit brave. Because the, you know, the alternative is what you know, a lot of people do, which is miss opportunities. We've all had that experience, right? So the alternative, so if we're not being courageous, we're missing opportunities? Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever missed an opportunity? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that we all go through in life. And, uh, you know, hopefully there are only little missed opportunities. But, um, you know, I've come across many a person who's kicked themselves for years going, oh, why didn't I just say, you know, at the, at the time? Or why didn't I go in on that venture? So, you know, I think, I think we miss opportunities, you know, in life and it's, it's one of those things that can either really change the course of your life or just be a hiccup in your day. Mm-hmm. So I know I talk, to, I talk to people a lot about courage and about fear and about what holds us back and what helps us move forward. And uh, it's something that a lot of people I don't think put a lot of thought into, but I'm firmly convinced that these are the things that alter the, you know, the trajectory of our lives. Well, you just said there that you do speak about it a lot and you've written a book, 10 Seconds of Courage. Talk to us a little bit about that. Where has that methodology come from and why, how were you able to write a book on, on the topic of courage? Ooh, that's a big question. Okay, so <laughs> start where I just finished before about the trajectory of your life, I, I look at... I look at the course of my life up to that point around when I got to write the book, et cetera, as a before and after for a few reasons I'll explain to you in a minute. So I look at the course of my life and I'm sure that all, you, all of your listeners will be able to do this as well. If you timeline out your life, if you look back on it, you'd be able to picture the moments where the highs and the lows came and usually they had something to do with your ability to step forward, your ability to make a choice, either to to go after something or to get up when you've been knocked down. So if you think about the timeline of your life, the high and low points, if you involve yourself in that rather than it just being life happened to you, you know, fantastic, you won that event. You won that event because you had the courage to sign up for the event. Mm. You know, 
or you, you know, you got that new job because you had the courage to get up when you were retrenched from your last job. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So I look back on my life and I could definitely define these moments um, that turned out to be the big moments. I call them the moments that matter. They're the moments that really matter in your life because they changed the course of what was going to happen in the future. So I looked back on my life at a moment where I'd had everything taken away from me essentially. Um, so I'd had this successful sporting career. I'd built a business around it. Um, I'd been someone who was lucky enough to find something I was really passionate about in martial arts. I had an amazing teacher to mentor me through that over a couple of decades. Um, so I really had a, a quite a rich life happening, um, you know, and then through a series of events, probably the most public of which was um, me getting cancer uh, in my late or mid thirties. Um, you know, I, I had everything sort of come to a, a crushing halt very quickly and it gave me time to really take stock and think about where I'd been and where I wanted to go. And I guess the, uh, you know, sitting there in the rubble of my life gave me some options and one of the ways that I, I made the decision to get back up was just to say yes um, over a coffee with a friend when they said, would you ever do a TEDx talk? And uh, I... I was like, oh, I suppose, you know, I never really thought about it before, but I said, you know, casually, yes. And what I didn't know was my friend Jess was on the organising committee for TEDx Sydney um, and she put me forward. And the next thing I knew, I was giving my first ever public speaking appearance, I suppose you'd say. Like I, I gave a speech for the first time since high school in front of two and a half thousand people at the Opera House. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know a couple of things about courage, but, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's in those moments where perhaps you make a small decision just to say yes and step outside yourself. And it can have these, um, these results that, that just take off exponentially. And the next thing I knew I was giving a speech, I had a new career. I got to write a book about um, 10 Seconds of Courage, which is the idea that I chose to share in my TEDx talk. Um, you know, my whole life changed from there. So, you know, it gave me really, being sick gave me a lot of time to think about where I'd been and where I wanted to go next. And even though I, I wish I could say that I had a mastermind strategy about where I was going to go in my future, um, you know, all I knew was that I couldn't stay where I was. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't necessarily know how I was going to get out of the situation I was in, but I knew that it was going to take some guts um, just to start saying yes at a, at a time in my life where I really would have liked to have said no and just stayed in my comfort zone. So, um, you know, is through my mind, sorry. I was just going to say, is that fear that would have kept you in the comfort zone? Um, I think it was at the time I was just beaten down, to be honest. You know, like things, we all go through things in life. Maybe people get divorced or, you know, something happens with their kids or their business. And, you know, when you just see someone who's, who's kind of been like had a body shot and they're on their knees a little bit, like, oh, brutal. You know, I think we all go through really hard stuff and I just happened to have a few really hard things happen all at the same time. And, um, you know, I was, I was at a point where I felt quite vulnerable and, um, you know, mentally and physically. And I was someone who had built a career on being strong in inverted commas. You know, in, in martial arts, in fighting in the ring as a kickboxer, um, you know, in coaching other people on, on mental toughness. And, um, you know, bringing out the best in themselves and, and doing the hard yards. And I found myself in a position where, um, you know, it became really hard to 
to get back up, you know, because the it's really hard to to go and do something uh, that involves physical fitness or strength when you don't have your physical fitness or strength for the first time in your whole life. Mm. It was a really challenging time and, you know, I look at all the things that make you you and this is a lot of what I talk to people about nowadays, like knowing who you are is such a core element, I think, to having, you know, a happy, productive life. And I don't think that there's a lot of avenues these days necessarily for people to learn that. You know, we don't teach it in school. Um, you know, and it, it can really affect the choices that you make and your ability to, um, you know, create the future that you want, create the life that you want today if you're not sure of who you are. And I think you and I have some similar similarity here around focusing on your, your beliefs and your value systems as far as self-knowledge goes. Yeah, massively well well said. Like the, the whole thing around knowing and owning your philosophy and who you truly are and not living by other people's beliefs and values and actually living in alignment and being, being very centred with that. And it doesn't mean that the life won't throw you all those challenges and mishaps, but it means that you're more prepared and more stable for them. And I really want to unpack those challenges that you went through, but I think it'd be really cool to sort of give us a bit of a clearer picture of where, so you said you didn't have as much of the strength in that moment, but you lived a life of building a lot of physical and mental and emotional strength through your sports. And you, I want you, I want you to talk to me about your, your mentor. So you're a black belt in, is it kickboxing and uh, it's a form of martial arts? Where, what, Where's your black boots? Um, yeah, my, the primary um, martial art that I've spent my adult life doing uh, is a thing called Yukidokan, which is a combination of nine different martial arts uh, joined together. The family style of a man named Benny the Jet Yukidas, who's a very well-known uh, American old-school martial artist. Um, some would call him a, a living master, but he would never call himself that. Um, and he was also very well known as uh, a kickboxer. He was like the Rocky of kickboxing. Hmm. And you, I really want to dive into this about how much you, you've learned from, uh, is that your, who you refer to as your sensei, Benny? Yeah, sensei. So, uh, that's just a term means basically honorable teacher. Um, so in the martial arts, you know, it's a wonderful thing. I suppose it's a bit like the military. There's a hierarchy and there's, uh, a system where, uh, respect is is a major part in how those relationships function, and I think it's something that I'm very much active in keeping alive today. I think it's very important. Absolutely, and your you obviously saw how important that was because you moved countries and made a lot of sacrifices. Actually, I won't say sacrifices. I'll say choices that probably weren't what most people your age were doing at that time when you really sourced out the opportunity to go and spend time with Benny and learn from him. Yeah. I mean, I look back now, you know, we started the conversation by going, oh, who would label themselves courageous? I do these days because I, I label everyone around me courageous. I look back on my little 20, early 20s self and I think, wow, that was pretty brave. <laughs> like a young kid these days, especially a little Aussie girl to go over and, you know, go over to the States and be in a, in a gym full of very experienced fighters when I was coming from a traditional martial arts background. I had a lot to learn. I didn't quite realise that till I got there. But, um, you know, it was, yeah, that was a pretty brave thing. I, I look back with a little pat on the back for myself and go, wow, that was, that was wild. 
Um, you know, because as you get older, I suppose a lot of us get more uh, connected to, oh, how would you say? You know, we can see that we might act with more trepidation rather than going, I'm going to America, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, we think about things a bit more. But, um, you know, we make these choices and they are life-changing choices. And Sensei Benny was actually just in Australia uh, last week he comes out every year and, uh, you know, still all these years later, I've, I've known him for over 20 years. I look back and I was saying to him, uh, you know, I don't know who I would be if I had never met him. Mm-hmm. He's had impact on my life. And, um, you know, I guess when I had that opportunity to do that TEDx talk, you know, it's meant to be ideas worth spreading. And I had found out how few people around me had a mentor in their life, somebody not just to say, hey, read this book or why don't you try working on that, but to really give them honest feedback, guidance, a direction to invest years in teaching them something, uh, not just on the outside with the external skill set, but in the, the, you know, the mindset and the spirit of what you're doing as well, you know, giving you a bit of heart with it. So I looked around me and I thought, wow, people really want mentors, but what I've discovered is they either don't know where to find them or don't know how to ask them. And then I guess it's the courageous step to ask them, but then it's another level of something within to actually then commit to what is required to really make the most of a mentorship. Everybody likes a good student, you know, and I, you know, I was explaining it to one of, one of my martial arts students the other day. So like you, I do a lot of coaching with people, mindset coaching, but also, you know, I still maintain that physical coaching with, with some people as well because those concepts are so inextricably linked. I was saying to my student, like this, look at it from the other point of view. The thing that I'm sharing with you in this moment, I had to literally bleed, sweat and cry for. And I, I'm happy to give it as a gift, but, you know, I think so often we have these opportunities and we think of it from our point of view, whether or not I would like to try to take you up on, you know, an offer of a coffee or, you know, an opportunity to, to maybe learn something. And we think of it from the student's point of view, but not the teacher's, um, you know, which is what did it cost you to be able to share this information with me? And when I see it that way, I think it makes us as students much more inclined to value it. Uh, so rather than going, wow, that was really interesting. and then you know, I just ask you to have another coffee and share with me more. I found the greatest value as a student is, and also as someone who coaches other people, is when you give someone a gift with a little present, you know, like a bow on it mentally, that that person takes the gift with two hands, goes away, unpacks it. Imagine it's like a Rubik's Cube. You don't just put the Rubik's Cube on the mantelpiece and look at it, that you take it away, you turn the colours, you, you know, you play with it it brings up questions for you. You come back and say, why is this side red? Why is this side blue? You know, and then you guys can have a conversation while moving that Rubik's cube that then encourages that relationship and both people to grow and engage and connect uh, as opposed to just we accept presents and we put them down and then we ask for another present. With what you're talking about there, because you had to bleed, sweat and cry for some of those empowering uh, lessons and life strategies that you could impart on someone else. Do you find that part of the challenge is from a coaching perspective that because you have bled, sweat and cried for it, it means you have an emotional attachment. Whereas it's a, and to teach you whatever skill it might be. And you think this person will optimize their lives 
if they learn this skill, but then you've got to find how to create that, not necessarily blood, sweat, and tears to them, but that emotional attachment for them to really embody the lesson, which is then going to make them want to take, do what is required to actually allow them to, to develop that skill, whatever it might be. That's a good point. You know, I've, I've been coaching people for uh, nearly two decades and what I've, my approach has changed a lot as I've gotten more experienced. And my, probably the number one thing that I go with is just being connected to whether or not they're ready. And they will show you whether they're ready by their actions, by whether or not they, you know, they keep putting their presence down and reaching for another one as opposed to being willing to do the work of it. And I used to run rings around myself and other people trying to get them to unpack the presence, you know, and point at the thing and say, this is the thing that you need to do or this is the thing that I think might have value for you or have you tried this and um, or even personalizing it, like you said, with the emotional attachment and saying, this is what worked for me in this situation. Here's the story of it. Can you see that that might work for you? Would you like to try it? Um, you know, and you can lead a horse to water and you can, you can spend a lot of energy trying to get people to do well-intended things. But, you know, when they say that when the student's ready, the teacher will appear and, um, you know, sometimes we have, we have great tools, lessons and teachers in front of us, but it all comes down to how ready you are. Absolutely. That, that saying, if you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink, but what if you can make the horse really thirsty? And that's the art of coaching of, <laughs> of really identifying that, that mental emotional attachment. And there's a, as you were talking to it, I'm sure you've watched Kung Fu Panda. I watched him very closely as a coach. And there's a saying in Kung Fu Panda number one, and the sensei says, there is no secret recipe, only you. And he says that to Kung Fu Panda. And that, that's the whole thing of what you're saying there and what you, I'm sure you've experienced in your whole journey is that it doesn't matter. So you can have the things that you have bled, sweat and cried for and you know that that's what they need. But you, I always say to people, I don't have the answers that you're looking for. You have them within you, but I can help you tap into them. 100%. It all comes back to you. You know, it, it come, we call it a knowing, uh, which I think is that it's your gut feeling or the little voice in your head that tells you what you should be doing. You know, it's that, it's that most people have enough common sense to know on some level, here's what I should be eating, here's what I should be learning, here's where I should go. You know, we all have that little voice in our heads, um, you know, that often works better if it's directed in the right direction. But, um, you know, I think everyone has that little thing inside them that is telling them very clearly the best course of action. But life can, you know, can take us away on top of that to a different place or we don't feel like doing the thing that we know is best for us. You know, and that can be tricky, but it comes down to what you know about you, what you know is best for you. And no one else, like you said, no one can tell you that. You can't say, here's the answer for you. Um, you know, and I'm sure you've had the same experience as a coach. You know, you can't, I'm not God. I'm not all knowing, all seeing. I can't tell you. I think it's as a martial artist, we try to, to keep the, uh, an approach of humility. We call it the white belt mindset. You know, I, I don't, I don't have the authority to tell you what to do, but I can help you get there based on what I've learned to do. Absolutely brilliant. And I think that's probably when we look back at the, 
the way that people might be reaching out for a mentor or not knowing what to do, it might be that they are looking for those answers and they want to place everything in the hands of that and not understanding. One thing that I coach people on is I'll help you get there, but you will take radical responsibility for your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and you will give me brutal honesty. That's how the open communication that we need to bring out, to tap into that best inner self. I like it. Yeah. And, but that's courage. Everything you just asked of, of them then is courage. What do you believe actually in, in your experience, in your belief? What, is it, what does it mean to be confident? What's the difference between courage and confidence? Ooh, you know what I talk a lot about is the difference between confidence and arrogance. Oh, brilliant. Please elaborate. <laughs> so in, in the world of boxing, kickboxing, MMA, fighting, um, you know, there's a lot of ego and there's often a lot of arrogance, you know, and um, it's part of, I think, what some people, some fighters create as their persona to go in the ring. You know, they're the kind of people who are very ego-driven. They want the applause and they want people to look up to them and they think they're tough. You know, and a lot of them are really tough. But I always, I always explain to people, you know, that that's a very dangerous road to tread because it's not based on real confidence. It's based on external rather than how you feel about you internally. If you need the applause, that's a dangerous road. You know, um, it's sure, if, you know, I love it when people clap for people. You know, I'm, I'm the first one to start clapping the loudest. I, it's, not, it's a nice thing, but, you know, confidence is what I tell myself about me in a positive way. Arrogance is what I tell you about me in a positive way. I'm going to let you know how good I am as opposed to I don't need to let you know how good I am because I have a knowing about me. If people clap for you, great. If they don't, that's okay. But if you're based on the external, on the ego-driven part of it, if people don't clap for you, the world crumbles. You know, it's a, it's a very difficult thing. There was a fighter in the UFC uh, yesterday who competed named Darren Till. Uh, and he was set to become the next world champion, and then he lost in quite spectacular fashion twice in a row. And uh, he competed for the first time after those losses yesterday. And I just listened to an interview with him this morning, and he said how scared he was to go back into the ring. So there's a man who was known as being very arrogant, was literally had you know everything go wrong for him. Uh, and now he's trying to rebuild his sense of self. And the fear was written all over his face when he, when he was in the ring yesterday. It was so interesting to watch as someone who's been there on some level, um, knowing what that's about. So, you know, it took courage for him to, to compete in the first place. It took courage to, for him to come back from a loss. And it took more courage, I believe, for him to admit how fearful he was. You know, it's, that, it's the difference between confidence and arrogance. When you build it, it's almost like... Um, you know, a glass house that can get shattered. But when you build a nice solid log cabin out of self-worth, you know, um, I think it's a more stable place to be, you know. And I think in the corporate world, um, one thing I, I see a lot when I walk into different companies, because as a, as a, you know, a motivational speaker, I get to walk in and for an hour I can, or an hour or two, I get to take a snapshot of the company culture of the energy in the room and I find it absolutely fascinating. So I'm speaking but I'm watching at the same time and I'm watching for how self-protective people are, how generous of spirit they are, um, you know, and because I'm speaking about courage and I do something, 
literally at the end of my speech where I'm asking someone to be courageous in front of everybody. And it's so interesting, the more competitive the culture, the less generous the energy in the room usually is, the less people will volunteer at the end to be brave. Uh, and it's, I've got about a 99% accuracy rate of being able to predict this based on the type of company and, uh, and at times even the gender split in the room. So masculinity, and please correct me if you, if you disagree, but, um, you know, part of masculine culture, I think, there can be those traps around um, saving face by not stepping forward. Yeah, I definitely don't have a correction there. I, I can speak from an experience in in another perspective. When you talk about that difference between confidence and arrogance, I also think about how society is shaped with, there's that saying of uh, you are not who you think you are, you are who you think I think you are. So yeah. we get caught up in and I say we generally as humans, we get caught up in doing things, like you said, for that external validation from what will other people think about me? I need to be better at this so other people accept me. I need to be better at that to make myself feel good enough or I won't do that because people will judge me. So we are not who we think we are. We are who we think other people think we are. And that, I guess, I'm just thinking out loud as I unpack this, but could lead to that arrogance in a sense where people really disconnect from what you were talking about at the beginning of who do you need to be rather than what do you need to do and who do you want, uh, what do you, who do you want other people to think that you are? So that masculine, coming back to your, your thing there around that masculine aspect, I, I see it a lot. And unfortunately on the receiver end, I was bashed and bullied a lot in my first couple of years of high school because I was really good at sport. And, uh, I never, I never bragged about it. Arrogance wasn't a trait that I even knew of. I came from a small country town, beautiful family, very supportive, but man, did I love to burn my energy and express my true self with sport. And you started off the conversation talking about that tall poppy syndrome in Australia and that masculinity aspect too of, of where it comes from of people trying to, um, push that down to prove themselves better. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm, I have, I think, uh, a somewhat unique perspective in that I'm a woman in a male-dominated sport. Um, so I, I've spent many, many years in, in fighting gyms surrounded by 95% men, um, you know, which is great. It's part of what makes it fun. But at the same time, I'm not perceiving the masculinity around me through masculine eyes. I'm perceiving it through feminine eyes. So, you know, and I, you know, sometimes I talk about one of the greatest examples I see is in a moment of hyper-masculinity, which is the dressing rooms before the fights, where you've got the guys um, who are literally going out there to prove themselves as men, men and men on men, may the best man win, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and this, there's really very few, I think, more masculine sports than, you know, two guys getting in there and having a fist fight in a way, but you know, I always see the truth of it as a woman where I'll, you know, I can be standing there and watching. And this was something that Sensei Benny helped me to understand when I was very young, he would just point different things out to me and say, what do you see there? And it made me look at what was happening, not on face value, but on underneath it. And, you know, I've seen many, a, you know, a very strong, tough, mean looking guy 
parading around in the dressing room before his fight with his, you know, giant steroid muscles and his mohawk and his tattoos. Uh, you know, talking about how he's going to kill him and he's going to get out there and he's going to smash him and, you know, all the stuff I'm sure you can imagine. When that guy loses, he's the one who is in the dressing room absolutely devastated, crying under the towel. No one can talk to him. He's embarrassed. He doesn't want to go out after the fights. Can't make peace with it. But it's the, you know, almost like what you were saying, arrogance wasn't something you thought of. It's the young guy who is cool with himself, isn't big noting himself before the match, win, lose or draw, he'll come back in the, in the dressing room and he'll still have his head up. You know, he'll be, he'll be the right level of proud of himself if he wins and he'll be still proud of himself if he didn't win because he knows he gave his best and his whole sense of self wasn't riding on the applause of the crowd and whether he got the big or the small trophy. The masculinity that's involved in that is quite complex, I think. And, um, you know, but it, it comes down to confidence, arrogance as a person, but also that extra masculine, the extra bit of masculinity tacked on the end of that means there's more at stake in some ways, I think. What about from how you experience it? I'm, I'm really intrigued by the dance and flow of life between calmness, which is super empowering for all of us because we're able to have clarity and make better decisions from a state of calmness, but also that inner fighter within us, which is also super empowering, where it's our, our inner drive to better ourselves, to learn, grow, and develop consistently, to take on the challenges, even, even with fear. And your sport is a very mindful practice, very connected with, to, to be able to perform consistently. You need that inner fighter, but you need so much calm and focus, that real skill of focus. So what were some of the ways that really intrigued to hear that you learned and practiced to absolutely hone your focus and your presence and your mindful practices? That's a great question. Uh, so something that I was taught to do by Sensei Benny that goes against the grain uh, as fighters was to look my opponent in the eye. Hmm. So as a, a old school fighters were taught to look at the square of the shoulders to watch for the muscle twitch of the person who's about to strike. Um, one thing that I, I really noticed is that uh, even in the face off where you're about to compete against the other person, some people will stare and try to intimidate and do all those things. Other people will look at the ground or the ceiling. They don't want you to see. And that can carry on during the match as well. And this all comes back to what we were saying before. Uh, it's knowing who you are. If you can make peace with who you are and make peace with the possible outcomes of the match, and this applies to anything in life, I think, whether it's a personal pursuit, a business pursuit, if you can pursue something, having made peace with the best and worst of you and made peace with the, the best possible outcome or the worst possible outcome, you can go into that pursuit with clarity, with a clear, connected, focused energy within you that you then are able to project forward. If you're trying to pretend you're something that you're not, somebody who knows themselves well will see straight through it. And the best example is, you know, the fighter trying to act like this on the when really secretly they doubt themselves. So they overdo it that can come across as arrogance or overconfidence, et cetera. Did you fight much with doubt and fear within you? Uh, yeah. So Sensei Benny taught me that, you know, he would say, look at the fighters, what do you see? And most people fight from either fear or anger. The calm, I'm just having a good time fighters 
I think they're less they're less frequent. But um, you know, it's in your first match. Of course, you have doubt. You know, that's that's why I competed. I was never into punching people in the face. Um, I like my brain cells. I am not a fan of violence. The reason that I went into the ring to compete for contact was literally to face my fear, to face up to, am I really made of the stuff that I think I'm made of? That little voice in the back of my head that said, when push comes to shove, can you stand your ground? Mm. Old. You know, and I wanted to know that the answer to that question and in my sport, the way to find that out was to compete for contact. What does fear feel like to you physically? Is it a, is it a gut feeling? Do you get the butterflies? Do you, is it the biochemical reaction? Is it a voice in your head? Is it your actions? What does the fear actually feel like to you? I definitely have a strong physiological reaction, whether that's from uh, when I was younger, my kneecaps used to shake and I thought that meant I was a coward. What I didn't understand, it was just an adrenal response, um, you know, or even before a match, I become a nervous weir. I go to the toilet 10 times in the last 15 minutes beforehand. You know, it's a, it's a tension and, a, um, yeah, I, I have a full body reaction, definitely. But I learned to channel my fear into focus because I knew that, um, you know, after I'd experienced it a few times, after I'd had a few matches, it made me realize that, and Sensei Benny helped me to articulate it clearly, that fear makes you fast, it makes you sharp, it makes your reflexes uh, quicker, it makes you a whole lot of things that you're not as, that aren't as expanded in your day-to-day life when you're not afraid. You know, so if you learn to, it's whether you ride the horse or the horse rides you. If you mm. learn to that, you can switch those dials on almost like, you know, in the space shuttles where they flick on all the dials before they take off. <laughs> you can learn to switch those, those reflexes on and go, right, I feel that fear of getting hurt in the pursuit that I'm about to do. So I'm going to switch on all of my fast defense. I'm going to be extra connected. So I was explaining to someone the other day, um, in traditional Japanese martial arts, when you bow, you uh, don't look, you put your head down. But in the style of martial arts I do, we always look. And that's part about, um, you know, it's not a challenge to the other person, but it's part of not, not hiding anything. If I'm good with me, I have nothing to hide when you look me in the eye. You know, and that's, that's a, a big thing to really tackle, especially when you're going into a pursuit that's that has some danger attached. So I was explaining to someone the other day, from the second I step into the ring until the second I step out, I don't take my eyes off my opponent. Hmm. Why? Because I know the severity and danger involved in what I do. I'm not pretending it's a, it's a game. I'm in there to play. It's, it can be life and death, unfortunately, in that sport. People don't die very often, but they do occasionally. So I never went in there with any delusions about what I was doing. I took it super seriously. So that meant that, my fear of getting hurt made me hyper-connected to my opponent. So I, I always had my eye on them because I respected them and I respected their ability to create an adverse outcome for me. Were you, you said before that it's a male-dominant sport. Were you in the gym fighting against guys that were much bigger and stronger than you to face that fear and to overcome that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just part of it and it's part of what, um, you know, you have to make peace with, what you're able to do and what you're not able to do. 
you know, and I watch the guys go through it as well. Unless you, you know, I, I trained with heavyweight world champions. Unless you're a 125 kilo, six foot three dude, there's always going to be someone bigger and stronger. <laughs> and even then, those guys have to get in the ring with other six foot three, 125 <laughs> kilo dudes. So the, what I do like about this sport is that it does bring that forward. Like you're forced to make peace with um, whatever your physical attributes and, and limitations are. Um, but, you know, one thing that I, I did find helpful is something that we call train hard, fight easy. So I competed at 62 kilos. I'm five foot six. And, uh, you know, even a girl, I competed against a girl once who was wearing a pink tutu in the ring. <laughs> even she looks scary when you know that she's about to try to take your head off. And your fear will play, it plays tricks on you. If I saw that girl walking down the street in a pink tutu, I wouldn't be afraid of her. Mm. But because I know what's about to happen and the reality of it is, it hurts. You know, um, I have no way to kid myself about what's coming. So when, you know, when you're in the ring doing that stuff, it's legitimate to be scared. You're not meant to think that it's not going to hurt. And I think that's what happens with, you know, say in, in our personal lives or in our business, you know, sometimes we can build up what we're scared of to the extent that it's so intimidating we step away and decide not to do it. But, um, you know, one of the things through conditioning your fear, getting used to your fear, um, with this idea of train hard, fight easy, is I would put myself in training for a match in the ring with the heavyweight world champion guy. Hmm. If I do that in the six to eight weeks leading up to the fight and I experience at regular intervals the feelings of fear, nervousness, intimidation, uh, concern about the pain factor that's coming my way, um, and, you know, not to say they would hit me as hard as they would hit a heavyweight dude. That's not respectful in our sport. But, um, you know, on the way to training, when I knew that there were going to be two of those guys that I was going to train with that day, of course my head played tricks on me. If I didn't, I'd be completely overconfident and not realistic. So it's knowing the correct reasonable level of fear and then facing that fear and experiencing all the emotions that go with it in the hour, in the lead up on the way to the gym, the two minutes before you get in the ring, the first two minutes being in the ring, all of those uncomfortable feelings and making peace with them. And that's, you know, that's that idea of train hard, fight easy. You, it's not just the physical training, that's a given. The execution of the skill set is a given. What takes uh, practice and becomes easier is dealing with the, the mental and emotional part of this pursuit. So when I do that for eight weeks leading up to a match, and I get in the ring with another girl who's five foot six. I'm so happy to see her. I'm like, oh, thank goodness, it's only one of you. <laughs> so I'm, I do have the nervousness. I do have the fear. But I also am familiar with it. I'm not experiencing those emotions for the first time at the moment I need to execute at the highest level. Well, what you said there before, earlier made complete sense where you said you channel your fear into focus. There's so much that goes into that. One, first of all, focus, I believe, is the number one skill that everyone should work on all of the time because we always get distracted by something, either other people, judgment, emotions, fear, whatever it is. So the ability then to refocus on what's important is a 
just a highly valuable skill. And that comes back to, again, well, what's important? You've got to know who you need to be. So you've got to do that work to know what to focus back on. But that, that the language that you use there, channeling fear into focus. The thing with emotions that we, we know and understand, the difference between anxiety and excitement, if we look at it physiologically, increased heart rate, same things going on internally, the only difference between anxiety and excitement is the thoughts that you have. So the experience that you have between anxiety and excitement is physiologically the same, but the thoughts that you have make it very different. Very similar with physiological uh, adaptations around anger, uh, sorry, experiences around like an anger and passion. So being able to channel your anger back into passion, the anger might stimulate you to want to improve and do much better. But if you respond from that, you're going to be rigid. You're going to be, I'm not talking about fighting here. I'm talking about life in general, whatever it might be, shifting gears, um, changing that, that dance between the dynamics of emotional states and energetic conditions that we have the choice of. I'm really keen to hear you, how you bring this into your your daily life now, your mindful practices and your ability to focus where you're challenged with that and how you bring it in. Because regardless of who I work with, whether I'm coaching an elite athlete, uh, elite coaches, executive leaders, or even the school kids, to be mindful and have that ability to focus is what's important. And then how to refocus after they're distracted, like I said, it's just to refocus on that required task at hand. I'd love to hear how you now bring that into your, your life now when you're not fighting. I'm a firm believer that you see the world the way you choose to see it, that you see yourself the way you choose to see yourself. You are who you tell yourself you are. Mm-hmm. Those are big statements, but, you know, it's, uh, you know, when you get bad news and all of a sudden you look at the ocean and it makes you sad, you hear the songs on the radio, it makes you sad. You know, there's an example I think most people can relate to, or if you've been, you know, you've had food poisoning from chicken. So every time you see chicken for the next few months, oh, don't like chicken. Hmm. You know, we get colored by our experiences. And there's, I think a lot of people feel powerless within that. But I believe that you have massive power in the choices about what you consume and experience every day. The thoughts that you think, the things that you read, the daily practices that you create for yourself. Um, you know, the, the focus that I had before in my competition, I definitely put a lot of energy into creating um, thought processes in my day now, um, you know, that serve me instead of having, like you said, we get, we get distracted by all kinds of things and people and, you know, I try to always bring it back to what's going to serve me the best, what emotional state, what mental state do I want to be in for what I need to get done today, for who I choose to be today. Um, you know, and I think that that's something that I, I'm not sure that a lot of people really understand how powerful they are. You know, you can choose what you tell yourself each day that will color how you perceive each day. You know, is it looking at the ocean and being sad or is it looking at the ocean and thinking it's beautiful? Um, You know, and I think that the times when people really turn towards this stuff is when they either have a big goal that they're going after or they've been through a big hard thing. That's when it becomes truly important to them because it's not just the day-to-day 
humdrum. You mentioned at the beginning too that you've been through your terminology then a big hard thing and, and you mentioned that you had experienced cancer. I'd love to hear you talk about now that these skills that we've talked about throughout this chat have obviously been gifted to you for you to to work through some of these big challenges. Can you tell us a bit about that journey of, of when you first sort of realized or, or learned that you, you had cancer and how you utilized these these mindsets and these processes to help you through? Yeah, sure. I mean, the I used to use the the tools that I've been given to create success for myself, whether that was in the sporting arena or in my business. Um, so I was actively learning a mental skill set in order to create good results in my life. Uh, and then all of a sudden my life came to a screeching halt and I had to look at what I was left with. You know, when everything gets stripped away, the external stuff, imagine you know, you, you lose your health and your business and all these different things all in one day. Um, who would you be? Who are you without those external markers of success, the external things that make you you and that take up your time? So when that happened for me, I had to look at what, what did I know really well? What did I still have? And that's when, you know, I looked at my mindset because I didn't have all the physical external stuff. I had to look at my mindset and all of the things that I'd been through and learnt along the way. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people, when they go through hard stuff, we tend to focus on the hard stuff that's happened rather than what it's teaching us. It's not till afterwards we can look back and go, that was really helpful. Um, you know, I came out of that with a clear understanding of A, B and C. But as it was happening, because of all the, I guess, the difficult challenges I'd been through in my competitive career, I knew enough to start looking at the time for uh, strategies, I guess is a good way, strategies to, to look for what this lesson was teaching me while it was happening instead of it happening later. That's super empowering because it's right in those moments, like you said, that's the hard part. It's really hard to create clarity when you're in that emotional roller coaster. How, what was it? Did you just sit with yourself? Did you spend that time to create the space and then and just listen to the stories that you were telling yourselves and then choosing what what story you would then tell yourself, what thoughts you would have? Um, I had a few big moments, you know, a big moment where things became quite clear. And I also had Sensei Benny, you know, a mentor who came to me in the middle of my cancer treatment. I had Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, so it's a type of blood cancer. And he came to me in the middle of it and he didn't say, what kind of cancer do you have or are you going to die or anything like that? He just asked me what I was going to do with it. Hmm. And I looked at him, you know, like a puppy dog. I turned my head like, huh? like what, what do you mean? Because I was worried about drawing my eyebrows on, back on at that point. You know? <laughs> that was my big focus. Like I had to go to my friend's house and say, how do you draw eyebrows on? Um, <laughs> you know, I had, I had very pressing in my face daily problems at that point. And he was trying to, we call it change your thinking. You know, he was trying to get me to change my thinking under adverse conditions um, in order to get a better result for myself instead of focusing on the problem. And um, the way I explain it in my first title fight, I broke my hand and I knew better than to sit down on the stool between rounds and tell him that I'd broken my hand. Um, not that he wouldn't have cared, not that he wouldn't have let me get out of the ring, but it was already too late. My hand was broken. And instead of focusing on, ow, my broken hand, ow, my broken hand, ow, my broken hand, 
I knew that I had six weeks to recover from that broken hand, even if I stopped in that moment. But I also knew to try to look for strategies around, well, what do I do? I've got two legs and another arm. Um, I'm already here. I don't want to go home and, and be sad about my broken hand for six weeks. I want to go home and have to recover from that injury. But also I get to choose in this moment the way the story goes. Is it going to be a story of tragedy? I broke my hand and then I lost the match and I was sad forever. Or can I make it, you know, a moment of personal triumph, even if I don't win the match where I didn't quit on myself, I tried to keep going. And that's the stuff that I took from my competitive career, those moments. Um, I'm not, I don't really care about trophies and applause. It's not my thing. I'm much more interested in what did I just learn about myself or the world that I can now use to be happier and more fulfilled. And I guess the same thing came from my cancer treatment where, you know, there was a lot of really hard stuff and my brother had literally just passed away from lung cancer and that's the way that I found out I had cancer, believe it or not. Um, what do you mean by that? How, how you found out? I, I'd watched him passing away for six months and when he did finally go, I popped a bag on my shoulder, a backpack on a plane a couple of days later after the funeral and I felt a little lump in my collarbone. And I went, oh, that's a bit sore. What's that? And um, it was just because I was so hyper aware of what he'd just been through that I paid attention to this little lump instead of, you know, looking at all the external factors, which was I was fit and strong and healthy and, you know, didn't think there was anything wrong with me. But it turned out I had stage two lymphoma. Um, you know, it's those little moments, like I was saying in the beginning of the chat, those, those moments where you look back on the timeline of your life and you, you either zigged or you zagged. I could have not called the doctor. But I had that little voice in the back of my mind going, hey, you know that wasn't there before, that lump. It was tiny. It was about the size of um, half a marble and it wasn't very raised or anything. It wasn't a big deal. It was just mm. a bit sore and I went, oh, that's a bit weird. You know, those moments where whether it's like I said before, you know, you're in the meeting and you've got an idea and you think it's going to get shot down, but you, you have that voice in your head saying, no, just, just say it, you know, or going for a new role or, you know, when I'm in a hyper competitive company speaking about this stuff and everyone's looking at me, you know, the dudes in suits with arms folded going fear. I don't know fear. <laughs> you know, those, those looks where no one's ever going to admit it. You know, I, I talk about, imagine if you saw like Giselle Bunchen across the bar, you know, and would you walk over and introduce yourself or would you get close and then decide you needed to order a drink? You know, it's those moments where, you know, you want to be brave, but there's a voice in the back of your head telling you to do it. And sometimes we get right to the edge of that moment and we don't make the phone call. We don't say hello to someone. We don't speak our idea. That's our day-to-day fear and courage, I believe. Mm-hmm. It's whether or not you can listen to that voice that's telling you clearly this, I think, is the best call of action for you and step forward. So I had, you know, a moment of clarity around calling the doctor to say, I, th- I think I need, what is this, you know? And I think everyone in their lifetime will have that moment where they know they need, probably need to go and get something checked out. I highly recommend it. <laughs> Just shifting back to that focus aspect through the cancer journey, what were you actually focusing on mostly to get you through? Like, was it focusing on nutritional aspects and the 
the things that you know that you need to do there? Was it focusing on a goal and, and your why to get you through it from a perspective similar to like a Viktor Frankl style where if, you, if your why is clear, you'll find your how. What were you focusing on mostly to get you through? I made a decision because I, because I came into it with my heart broken from my brother passing away and um, I was having some other stuff going on in my life. It was quite hard as well, all within about two weeks. I had three major life events. Um, I came into it sad, if that makes sense. Instead of coming into it in a really great place, I came into it a little bit dented already. Um, and then I was gutted. I was in shock, to be honest. Like, I can't believe this is my story. Like, what? I thought I was strong and healthy and now I'm, you know, facing my own mortality in my 30s, you know. Um, so in the first little bit of it, I was sad and shocked and pretty devastated. But then I knew it's like the broken hand. I've got it. I had to make a choice. The choice was, do I focus on the sad part of it, the broken hand, the, the devastating part of what was happening to me? Or did I make a choice to try to find the good in it? And I'm not talking about you know, yay, I want to be the cancer poster child and do it all right and, you know, all that stuff. But just I made made peace with the outcome just like I would in the ring in order to get myself to go through the motions of getting in the ring instead of focusing on, well, you might get hurt, you might lose in front of everyone, you know, some bad thing might happen. Um, I just made a choice about what I felt was going to happen. And even if I was wrong, even if I did end up passing away from it, I would rather have spent the last however many months of my life being positive and assuming the best rather than plugging into the autopilot and focusing on the pain of it and the sadness of it. And I think that really helped me, to be honest. I think that's, it's a helpful thing to do, you know, when any hard stuff happens is hope for the best in a way, um, but not blind faith, but I made a decision whatever's going to happen is is going to happen but i'm going to assume in this moment that it's all going to work out perfectly why do you believe you got cancer ooh there's a big question um i've had lots of people tell me their opinion about why um you know and i had someone say to me this morning everything happens for a reason my opinion on it has changed over the last 6 years you know it it goes in and out of different versions of it, but I believe that uh, sometimes things just happen. You know, there is, I, I've gone towards different belief systems around it, but at the end of the day, um, you know, there's a lot that happens in life that we can't control. And I used to spend a lot of time um, trying to control things. But there are things I believe that happen that are beyond our control. And, um, you know, I don't waste my energy the way that I used to trying to trying to control things anymore. Some things are out of our control. Comes back to that skill of focus too, right? If you know, if you focus on the things that you can control instead of focusing on the things that you can't control, then that can help to create that clarity. And even the word control, sometimes we, we need to just let go of control. It's really interesting to hear you say that you've shifted through different belief systems around that. And then now just believing that it's, yeah, maybe there's not a, a deeper reason for it. And that's probably you just detaching from all of that and just focusing on what is actually important to move you forward. I mean, I, yeah, I can, I've definitely had moments where I felt it happened for a reason because of the way my life's changed for the better. 
uh, and my purpose is deepened and what I'm able to share with other people is completely changed. I think I've got my ducks much more in a row in a, in a deeper way than I used to. But um, at the same time, you know, I was sitting there saying to my oncologist when I was first diagnosed, like, was there anything that I did in my life that contributed to this? Or, you know, there are some people who really believe that um, our emotional state can, can create illness. Um, I, don't, I don't believe in the right or wrong of anyone's opinion. I believe that we don't necessarily know beyond genetic coding. You know, and my oncologist just said to me, listen, you're unlucky, kid. Like your your genes are switched on in this way and, you know, it's one of those one of those things. Um you know, I could I could say, well, I shouldn't have, you know, wrapped my sandwiches in plastic when I was younger or <laughs> you know, all the different reasons and I've I've done a lot of reading on on why people get cancer from a medical perspective. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, I have taken much more of a relaxed approach to my life ever since uh, because I found out what it feels like to be powerless for the first time in my life. I had felt very powerful my whole life until the point where I literally, I was powerless. I couldn't open a bottle of water by myself you know, and let alone mentally powerless. So now I just sort of, I've chilled out a little bit more. I've, you know, people are, have very strong opinions about religion and politics and all of these things that we try to control and, and we, a lot of people try to be right about. I don't know why I got cancer. I just got it, you know, and that's, I don't know that anyone knows why do little kids get leukemia and, and things like that. Maybe there's a higher purpose, but I think some things just happen. And if I can't, if I can't say definitively this is how and this is why, I'm okay with not knowing because I can't control it. I live a healthy life now. I did before too, but I live a healthy life um, now where I try not to stress too much. I think stress is a contributor, but, um, you know, I try not to stress too much about things that I can't control anymore. And, you know, I look around me at, at the world and I think some amazingly beautiful things happen, but some really tragic things happen in the world, much more tragic than me getting cancer. Um, you know, and, and they're things that we can't stop or control necessarily despite our best intentions. So, you know, I just try to to keep it simple and try to live a good purposeful life, um, you know, today. And, and I know that even being super fit and healthy didn't save me from from an illness. You know, so I just try to take good care of myself and, and you know, have a, a positive, happy, healthy life today. Thank you for sharing. That's beautiful to hear you unpack it in that way. I'm very mindful of your time. I could talk to you for, for days. We, we might have to do a round two of this because there's a lot of areas that I'd love to go into. But um, just, just out of curiosity, what really lights you up to talk about with people? What's something that you know that there's a lot of different avenues you can go down and similar to like what we said before where if people haven't, got the emotional attachment if they haven't bled, sweat and cried for things, it's really hard to sort of impart that. But what really lights you up to talk about with people? Knowing who you are and giving people the tools to see the best in themselves because I've, I, could, I spend literally days on end, you know, both personally and professionally um, digging deep with people on this because what I've seen around me and, and I've really actively engaged with people around this is, you know, so many people don't feel good about themselves. 
you know, they, they're stuck on what they did wrong, the mistake they made, where they didn't end up going, losing that five kilos, you know, the, getting their mortgage and you know, all of these things. And I'm very clear that life is short, you know, um, speaking to the randomness of it. You, you can't control if you have a car accident tomorrow. You, you can't control what your genetic coding is doing to an extent. Um, you know, and you don't know what's going to happen for you and your loved ones. So I'm a big fan of trying to enjoy the moment that you have now. And if you're not feeling good about you, it doesn't matter what happens around you. All the money in the world, all of the success in the world won't be enough if you don't feel good about you. So I'm, I'm really big on helping people to see the good in them clearly and giving them the tools to develop that if that's not where they're coming from currently. Because I see a lot of people, uh, you know, they're struggling and they don't necessarily have the people in their lives or the literal tools to use to, to change their thinking and to change that inner voice from one that's, you know, that's not the most positive to one that is happy and, and helpful. What's next for you? What's your big audacious visions? Oh, well, <laughs> I've just actually been sitting here this morning looking at, uh, looking at some, some overseas opportunities for next year and, you know, making some plans because, like I said, I, I want to enjoy my life. I was very lucky to do a lot of speaking overseas this year and get to travel with it. Um, so it's good to, do, to have success in business, but, um, you know, my success now comes from, from connecting with people and, and being happy and getting to do the things I love. So tying all of those things together is absolutely my big audacious goal. If I can have success in, uh, in lots of areas at once and enjoy doing it rather than just focusing on the success part, um, then that's great for me. And I'm getting married next year. So that will be my big thing for, for 2020. Less than 10 days till my wedding. So I know what oh, you, <laughs> the feeling of getting married. Thank you. Yeah. Very, very exciting. Absolutely. Oh, that's brilliant. You know, and I hope that, uh, you know, in, in the year to come, you look back on that, like we were talking about with the timeline and pin the medals on your chest about you that involve how you got there. How did you two meet? How did you, how did you connect when you, you know, it, that's the stuff that I like to focus on. It's not just the event in life, but what is it in you that made that beautiful event happen? Does that make sense? Absolutely. I love that. And that's what we say where we, we didn't need to get married to show anything. We know we're going to be together forever and, and there's so much love and connection, but it was kind of, well, we want to celebrate that with our families and bring the whole environment. So it's not just about the day, it's about the the days before and the days after, but even the processes leading into this, we're doing exactly what you just said. We're reflecting on our journey together instead of just grinding through and that being stressed about organizing things, we're making it feel like a holiday where we're going something new and having some tappers and a beer and just really relaxing into it or, you know, doing different things like that to really enjoy the whole journey because that's the way our relationship has been. So we don't want to have a stressful one day event and that be just something completely disconnected from who we are as beings. That's beautiful. And I'm sure, you know, for any of your listeners that are stressed right now or going through something where they're focusing on the broken hand part of it, um, you know, I think that's really good advice is to just try to relax and shift your thinking, you know, to the, the joy in it. Like even in my worst moments, in my training, Sensei Benny would, you know, would grab hold of me and say, find the joy in it, find the joy in even the worst moment. And I guess, you know, and 
I, I like knowing that everything can be taken away from us. It sounds scary and awful, but I use it in a joyful way, knowing that, you know what, today I'm so lucky to have what I have in my life. Even though we all have stresses, it's so important to not focus on those and to try to shift and find, you know, the positives and the joy and the, and the strategy moving forward. Oh, I love it. Absolutely love it. All right, a few quick questions before we wrap up. First of all, and you might have already done this uh, in a sense, but just for a bit of clarity with everyone, what's three key take-homes that you want to leave with the listeners today from, from your life experiences and your beliefs? Oh, number one, know who you are. So do the work to find out the truth about what you're made of and who you are, um, which leads into your values and beliefs so you know what you want, where you're going, what's going to make you truly happy. Um, listen to your gut. So listen to that knowing in you, that little voice in your head, because I'm a firm believer that it's usually right and even if it's wrong, at least you backed yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we talked a little bit about that idea of 10 seconds of courage. You know, that's what will decide ultimately um, you know, the trajectory of your life at times. It's whether or not you had the courage in that moment when you get that nervous feeling to step forward, to speak up, to act. And, um, you know, I guess it's that thing of what we were talking about towards the end, knowing that, you know, our time on, on this earth is perhaps limited and, um, you know, the more times you play that courage card, hopefully the better the life that you're going to build for yourself and, um, you know, the, the more actively you'll be involved and at least it'll give you feedback on, on who you are and what you're made of. That 10 Seconds of Courage is the book that you've written and I highly encourage everyone to get a hold of it. Where can they get a hold of it? Where can we learn more about you and follow you on social media, website, et cetera? And then also, how can I and the listeners help you on your journey? Uh, so uh, the book is available online. Um, I always ship people off to uh, various websites, but uh, easy access is Booktopia. Um, and the, the 10 Seconds of Courage book is... Basically, uh, Sensei Benny used to make me write down all the things that he told me and I decided that it would be a good purposeful thing in life to give away um, the lessons that I was lucky enough to receive from a mentor without people having to bleed, sweat and cry for them. Um, So he made me write them down and I wrote them all down in a book for everybody else. Um, You know, if you like what I was talking about today, feel free to share my, um, my 10 Seconds of Courage TEDx talk on YouTube, on your social media, and you can, uh, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, etc., LinkedIn at uh, Nadine Champion. So feel free to connect. Brilliant. I'll link all of that up in the, the show notes. And I do want to ask, is there anything that you would like to ask me before we wrap up? Um, I, you know, I really enjoyed, as I said to you before, uh, having a look at your website and seeing what you're doing because it really, your sense of purpose really came across. Um, can I ask just you, what's your primary value? What do you value the most? I've done a lot of work on my values and, and my, what I say is my number one core value is my health. And what that means to me is my physical, mental and emotional health. And what that means to me is that every day I'm making choices and decisions in alignment with, I love to exercise, but it's not just about that. It's about the mental health in terms of challenges, in terms of understanding how my breath work can shift uh, my blood flow and my processes in my mind. It's uh, really working deep on emotional intelligence and understanding how to calm the mind, clear the heart, connect to the body and really navigate from all of those perspectives, understanding you know, what is fear for me, what is anger for me, what is gratitude for me and really tapping into all of those things. So it's my, my holistic health in that perspective. And as I grow and experience a little bit more around spirituality, 
that's definitely woven in. But from my experience with that, I feel like spirituality is about presence. And the more present I am with, with, like you say, know who you are, the more present I am with who I am and then my external environments and then sort of getting very curious, I feel like that really ties in and just links with the physical, mental, emotional and spiritual perspectives. Brilliant. Yeah, that's and it's great to see that you, you know, you have done so much work on yourself but you're so willing to share that with other people and I think that that's, um, you know, your depth of commitment to that really shines through and I think that that makes for a very good life and, um, you know, I'm sure that there are a lot of people who look to you as a mentor and, you know, anyone who, who comes from that really solid foundation place of wanting to help themselves and other people I think is a, is a good mentor and, you know, I'm sure you provide people with a lot of tools that make sense to them and, and I try to do exactly the same thing. So if, uh, if any of your listeners would like to connect with me, you know, for 2020 and, you know, find out a little bit more about, um, about what I'm doing, they can feel free to email me on uh, info, I-N-F-O at nadinechampion.com, N-A-D-I-N-E. C-H-A-M-P-I-O-N.com. Absolutely. I highly recommend. I'm going to link all of that in the show notes. And like I said, everyone jump on, check out the website, check out the book. One last thing though, now you've stimulated this within me. What's your number one value? Oh, so similar to you. So similar to you. <laughs> uh, it's, around, it's around being very kind. Mm. And so we're talking about health. Um, within that, my being kind to myself and other people is where I lead from today. Um, you know, so making sure that I'm kind to my health, kind to my heart, kind to those around me, because when I had everything stripped away from me, what I knew was money didn't matter. Trophies don't matter. All of those things don't matter. The only thing that mattered to me was how I felt day to day within myself. Was I at peace? Was I happy? And the people that I loved, that was it. So that comes from kindness to me. And I know that, um, you know, in my sport before I was very, very driven, I was very hard on myself. So that's also a way of me reminding, reminding myself to temper that part of my personality uh, and be gentle, be gentle with myself. So very similar to you, a, a whole mind, body and spirit, happiness and health. Nadine Champion, you're a legend. You're a true champion. You're a connected, grounded soul that isn't just inspiring us to take empowered action, but also teaching us how. Keep shining your kind and abundantly courageous light to the world, my girl. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. Boom. And holy shit. What an amazing woman, amazing story. If you didn't take notes on this one, I highly recommend you do it while it's fresh on your mind or listen again and make some notes, not just the mental notes. What a present powerhouse for our world that Nadine is. Remember, the three key take-homes. Know who you are. That means you've got to do the work. Listen to your gut. There's a skill and belief to trust your instincts. And take 10 seconds of courage. Don't let those opportunities slip you by. Make sure you jump onto nadinechampion.com, which I've also linked in the show notes, and buy a copy of her book. Be inspired by it. Get some as gifts for your loved ones and help spread this impactful message and these empowering skills. 
And as Nadine said, feel free to reach out to her via email and you can find all those links on the website. Follow her on social media. Everything is linked there in the website. Also, share this episode with any friends or family that you believe will benefit. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.